everybody, and welcome to the second episode of Strangely Enough. My name is Richard, and uh, I'm your host. Uh, Bill is not with us this week. We're still working out some technical issues at uh, his recording location, but I'm confident he'll be with us by the next episode. Let's do a little housekeeping first. Uh, we're in the process of moving... Uh, and uh, we're going to be moving over to uh, blacksparrowmedia.com. Uh, new provider, new host, that kind of thing uh, gives us more room. We don't have to worry about bandwidth and uh, everything else. Uh, you're not likely to see the actual move if you're uh, downloading us through one of the uh, podcast directories or uh, iTunes or some of the other places. But uh, what will change is email addresses. Uh, last week I gave out KB5JBV, strangely enough, no, Richard, strangely enough, at gmail.com. That was Richard, uh, strangely enough, at gmail.com, and Bill, strangely enough, dot, at uh, gmail.com. Those will be changing to, uh, my new one will be Richard S.E., Richard S.E., at blacksparrowmedia.com Richard S.E. at blacksparrowmedia.com and Bill's will be uh, Bill S.E. at blacksparrowmedia.com Now we're in the process of moving over and it's a brand new startup over there and uh, we've got uh, all the room we could possibly need for uh, our two current podcasts uh, we're going to try and build a little bit of a network if we can. So if any of you folks out there uh, have a podcast, interested in starting a podcast, uh, y'all kind of get with me because we want to get some content going over yonder. Uh, once again, that's blacksparrowmedia.com, and y'all probably won't see the change. We're going to migrate over slowly over the next month. This podcast and uh, my original pod show, which is... Uh, uh, what the heck's the name of it? Resonant Frequency, the Amateur Radio Podcast. Okay, so uh, with all that, uh, let's go ahead and jump in and get started. Uh, first item I've got for you this week is a woman wakes up after family says goodbye and tubes are pulled. Now, this is pretty interesting. I, I found this uh, uh, a little on the unusual side, or it wouldn't be here. Um a West Virginia woman is at the Cleveland, Cleveland Clinic after waking up, excuse me, after walking the line between life and death. Uh, doctors are calling Val Thomas a medical miracle. They said they uh, can't explain how she is alive. <laughs> uh, they said Thomas suffered two heart attacks and had no brain waves for more than 17 hours. At about 1.30 a.m. Saturday, her heart stopped and she had no pulse. A respiratory machine kept her breathing and rigor mortis had set in, doctors said. Her skin had already started to harden and her fingers curled. Death had set in, said her son, John Thomas. They rushed her to the West Virginia Hospital. The doctors put Thomas on a special machine that induces hypothermia. The treatment involves lowering the body temperature for up to 24 hours before warming a patient back up. After that procedure, her heart stopped again. She had no neurological functions, uh, said uh, Dr. Kevin Eggleston. 
Her family said goodbye, and the doctors removed all the tubes. However, Thomas was kept on a ventilator a little while longer as an organ donor issue was discussed. Well, let me tell you, I bet she is probably really happy that that discussion went on as long as it did. Uh, I don't know. It, it, it really seems to me she might have woke up while they were cutting on her. Okay, ten minutes later, the woman woke up and started talking. Uh, she said, I'm, I'm sorry, the nurse, uh, said, I'm sorry, Miss Thomas. And Miss Thomas replied, that's okay, honey. That's okay. Uh, Miss Thomas and her family strongly believe that the Lord granted them a miracle and they want everyone to know. I know God has something in store for me, another purpose. I don't know, uh, what it is, but I'll I'm sure he'll tell me. Uh, she was taken to the Cleveland Clinic for specialists to check her out. Doctors said, amazingly, she has no blockage and will be fine. Okay, let me tell you. Uh, Miss Thomas, uh, if for some reason you hear me out there, uh, I wish you a speedy recovery. Of course, uh, looking at the picture, you're probably in your uh, 70s or so, and uh, if God has a plan for you, he probably needs to uh, get on it. Okay, our next one comes from MSN.com. Uh, Toad aphrodisiac kills man in New and New York issues warning. I found this one. Uh, <laughs> you know something? Um, uh, aphrodisiac, you know... Uh, I myself, I grew up here in Texas, man, and we don't dope the horses. We just let them run. Okay, health officials are warning New Yorkers to stay away from an illegal aphrodisiac made from toad venom after the product apparently killed a man. The city's poison control issue, uh, poison control center issued a warning Friday after receiving a hospital report that a 35-year-old man who ingested the hard brown substance died earlier this month. The product is sold under names including Piedra, Lovestone, Jamaican Stone, Blackstone, and Chinese Rock at sex shops and neighborhood stores. It is banned by the Food and Drug Administration. City health officials said the victim, whose identity was not released, was admitted to the hospital complaining of chest and abdominal pains. He died two days later. Health officials said the hardened resin, made with venom from toads of the buffo genus, well, there you go, the toads are genuses and the people taking the stuff are not genuses. Certain chemicals uh, that can disrupt heart rhythms. The aphrodisiac was supposed to have been applied to the skin, not eaten. But authorities said even that use can be harmful. There is no definitely safe way to use it, said Dr. Robert Hoffman, director of the city's poison control center. Don't buy it. Don't sell it. If you have it, don't use it. Throw it out. The same type of product killed a 40-year-old man in Brooklyn in 2002, and at least four New Yorkers in uh, the early 1990s. A 17-year-old boy also fell seriously ill, but survived following hours of aggressive treatment. 
Following that outbreak, city investigators went looking for the poison and found it was being sold sporadically in grocery stores, smoke shops, and by street vendors. Inspectors have been on the lookout for the stuff ever since, but identified, but identifying it is isn't easy, isn't always easy. It is sometimes sold in package, packaging labels only in foreign languages, probably Chinese. Uh, that was me. <laughs> uh, it is not clear how available the aphrodisiac is elsewhere in the U.S., although some similar products have been seized from suspected drug traffickers in other East Coast cities. And uh, that pretty much is uh, all of that one there. Well, let me tell you, if anybody tries to give you a brown piece of resin, you know, uh, resin, uh, only resin I, I I really want to fool with is chewing gum myself, and due to recent recent things that have cropped up here in the family lives, I'm liable to be chewing a lot of it. Uh, like I said, it's hard for me to understand because we just uh, set them out in the pastures and let them run. Alrighty, uh, last week I bypassed this particular story because. Um, it just really, it just didn't make the cut. However, I found something this week which made me go ahead and go back and get this story so I could uh, so I could put it on you. Um, it involved our lovely RCMP again. Um, severed foot mystery deepens. Okay. Uh, the Ogopogo, the Bermuda Triangle, mermaids. The ocean has always been a trove of mysteries, most of which remain unsolved. The latest head-scratcher, though, uh, is uh, leaving everyone from the police to Oakland oceanographers baffled, is a series of sneaker-clad right feet that have washed up on shorelines along islands in British Columbia. There have been at least four in the last year. All feet were wearing a sock and shoe. Two of them were size 12. Okay, you guys up in British Columbia, if you got size 12 feet, you probably need to uh, stay indoors. The latest one was found on May 27th, or 22nd, on Kirkland Island in the Fraser River. It's certainly a mystery we intend on solving. Constable, Constable Annie Latou, with the RCMP E Division, told the media recently, it's certainly very unusual. Well, we know about this RCMP. These are the same ones that tasered the old man. Okay, the, uh, the first in the series was found nearly a year ago on Jedediah Island. Within days, another foot was found in a Reebok sneaker on Gabriola Island. The third was found on the east side of Valdez Island in early February. The origin of any of the remains is still unknown. Lentow said that there is no evidence that the... Okay, y'all pay close attention. There is no evidence the feet were severed or removed from the victim's legs by force. Okay. By force. <laughs> 
<laughs> if your foot comes off your body, there has to be some force involved. They don't just fall off for no reason. Unless, of course, you've got Addison's disease, or not Addison's disease, uh, leprosy. Uh, but uh, there had to have been something done pull that foot off that body. Curtis Ebsmeyer, an oceanographer based in Seattle, Washington, said when a human body submerged, is submerged in the ocean, the main parts, like the arms, legs, hands, and feet, and the head, usually are usually what come off the body. Well, okay, that doesn't leave a whole lot else. Luckily, in this list is one item I intend to carry with me to the grave. But he's still baffled by how the exact same part, a right foot, could wash up repeatedly. Maybe it's Daisy Lou. It's not uh, unusual for body parts to wash up along the uh, United States or Canada. There's so many accidents like boating that's, that it's not... you that it's not unusual. It is usual to find four four bodies over the course of the year. Okay, it is unusual to find four bodies over the course of the year and just right feet. Okay. That was kind of... He's trying to say it's unusual to find four feet by themselves in a year. He said his theory is that the feet came along as a result of an accident that might have happened along the Fraser River that washed down and spread out along the Strait of Georgia. Ebsmeyer said he would urge the police to trade the, trace the shoes back to the store they were per, where they were purchased. There is a lot... And this is quoting him, there's a lot you can do with the serial number of a shoe, and I'm assuming the RCMP are doing that. Well, I don't know about y'all, but uh, I wear walking shoes at, or running shoes at work to uh, kind of ease the me having to stomp around on a cement slab all day. And I go into these foot locker kind of places and, and purchase shoes all the time. And not once have I ever seen them take the serial number of that shoe and uh, put it in the register. Now, there may be a way they're doing it, but I don't believe it. And if they run the, uh, ser uh, the uh, serial number on that shoe, it's probably going to come back to a, a, uh, a wood thatched hut somewhere in South China. Okay, I read y'all that. So I could read you this. Uh, this cropped up uh, this week. In fact, uh, it was in the May 28th edition of the Austin American Statesman uh, down in Austin, Texas, down south of here. Uh, she found with human remains uh, matches one found last year. She found with human remains Saturday morning near the shoreline of Lake Travis matches a shoe found about a mile away close to Windy Point Park in November. Travis County Sheriff's Office spokesman Roger Wade said Tuesday. About 10 a.m. Saturday, a boater called 911 after the tennis shoe was discovered on land a few feet from the lake in an area between Hippie Hollow and the Oasis Restaurant. 
that is accessible only by boat. Detectives with the sheriff's office went to the scene to collect the remains. Wade said they searched the area for other evidence but did not find any. Wade said he could not say what type of remains were found inside the shoe. Our sheriff's people here in Texas probably not a whole lot brighter than the, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Uh, if there's remains in a shoe, you can pretty much figure it's foot. Remains also were found in a shoe discovered earlier, he said. Wade said investigators think that the DNA is from the same person. The remains have been sent to the University of North Texas for analysis, Wade said, adding that detectives would not speculate on who the person was until they received the results. Okay. Number one, Austin's not a small city. I mean, it ain't, it ain't as big as Dallas and it ain't as big as Houston. But I'm sure they have a crime lab. Secondly, why would they send, why do they send it to the University of North Texas? The University of North Texas is about 60 miles north of where I live here, right outside of Dallas, Texas. And uh, down in Austin, they have the University of Texas right there. They also have uh, Baylor University, which is. Uh, a little bit further north, up in Waco. Uh, Y'all heard of Waco, I'm sure. And I believe A&M is in College Station, which is halfway between the two. So there's probably a, a half dozen or dozen universities between here, uh, between uh, the University of North Texas and Austin, uh, that uh, they could have sent the remains to for analysis. But sure enough, they had to ship it up here. Well, that's enough of that. You know, I'm, I'm, the, some of this stuff is just crazy. Crazy, crazy. Speaking of crazy, those wacky Aussies are at it again. Australia fishermen have uh, hauled up a 20-foot-long giant squid off the country's southeastern coast. Skipper Rangia Penny said Monday that the 500-pound squid was already dead when it was caught in a trawler's net Sunday night in the waters more than 1,640 feet deep. Paul McCoy, a fisheries research biologist, said it took 10 men to lift the squid onto a stretcher and place it in a storage freezer in the city of Portland. A museum will collect it this week. McCoy said any analysis by the museum would determine the type of squid its age, and possibly how it died. Now, you know, them Australians, they always get in the news, man. And now they've got a giant squid to, to show off. We'll probably be hearing about that for some time. But let me tell you, I hope that the guy that pulled it in got a picture because nobody, nobody is going to believe that fish story at all. Okay, see what else we got here. I think my stuff's out of order. But we'll see. Uh, I really don't want to do the preacher just yet. Let's do the space station writer's reports. 
that astronauts aboard the NASA Space Shuttle Discovery will be carrying an extra piece of cargo with them when they launch on Saturday. This was uh, May 29th, so they must have launched yesterday. Uh, a new toilet pump. <laughs> yeah, buddy. I know y'all can see it coming. Crew members aboard the International Space Station have been fumbling with plastic bags since their zero-G toilet uh, made a loud noise and stopped working properly last week. Oh, boy. They're going to be flushing this stuff out there like. We will be taking some spare parts up, NASA spokesman Allard Butel said by a telephone interview on Wednesday. The three station crew members want the toilet working properly for obvious reasons. But on Saturday, they will be sharing facilities with the seven space shuttle astronauts. You can imagine you are having guests over and your one and only bathroom is broken. Clearly, this is something you want to have working, Butel said. Discovery will carry a pump and other spare parts for the toilet, which is still which is still disposing of solid waste. Well, if it's broke, how can that anyway? Um, the seven Discovery crew members will carry out other handy handyman tasks after they dock on Monday, including fixing a paddle wheel that turns one of the station's solar solar wing panels and replacing nitrogen tanks needed to pressurize the station's ammonia cooling system. A second toilet is also planned. The space, space toilets vent waste matter into space and work using carefully designed vacuums so nothing unpleasant escapes into the gravity-free station. Okay, I, I didn't catch that the first time through. Uh, it disposes of the waste into space. Okay, that may not be raindrops coming down on your head. Uh, please steer clear of the yellow rain. Holy mackerel. They're helping prepare the station for an expanded permanent six-member crew. NASA has two years to complete the space station before retiring the shuttle fleet. Well, it sounds to me you got seven on the shuttle, you got three on the space station. It really does sound to me that it might be advantageous to keep them shuttles going. But I'm still having a problem with them dumping that stuff in space because now I'm not going to be able to go outside without an umbrella. Okay. And up next, what have we got? Oh, I want to save that one. Uh, let's do this one. Child's toy revealed as an ancient Persian relic. An ancient gold cup mysteriously acquired by an English scrap metal dealer is expected to fetch close to a million dollars at auction after languishing for years in a shoebox under its current owner's bed. Owner John Weber says, his grandfather gave him the five-and-a-half-inch-tall uh, mug to play with when he was a child back in 1945. He assumed the golden cup, which is decorated with the 
heads of two women facing in opposite directions, their foreheads garlanded with uh, two knotted snakes, was made of brass. But he decided to get it valued when he was moving house last year and was told it was actually a rare piece of ancient Persian treasure beaten out of a single piece of gold hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus Christ. Experts said the method of manufacture and the composition of the gold was consistent with the, here's another one of them words, y'all, Achaemenid gold and goldsmithing, dating back to the 3rd or 4th century B.C. BC. The Achaemenid Empire, the first of the Persian empires to rule over a significant portion of greater Iran, was wiped out by Alexander the Great in 333 B.C. Auction House Dukes in Dorchester, southwest England, will put the cup under the hammer on June 5th with an estimate, estimated price of 500,000 pounds. Uh, that's 630,000 euros or $998,000. Weber, 70, told the Guardian newspaper that his grandfather had a good eye for antiques and picked up all sorts as he plied his trade in the town of Taunton. Taunton. You folks in England correct me on that so I can say it right next time. In southwest England. Heaven knows where he got this. He never said. Uh, I guess we're talking about Weber. Uh, re revealing that as a child he used the cup for target practice with his air gun a million dollar air gun target holy mackerel and this stuff just turns up all the time you know I, I used to do a little dabbling in uh, antiques and glassware and pottery and I was constantly running across stuff that uh, was actually worth a great deal Okay, we're getting close to the end of things, and I want to leave y'all with this one. I kept pushing it back a while ago, because uh, this is my favorite of the week. And uh, it's basically, uh, there's a man in New Zealand who is accused of assault with a prickly weapon. <laughs> well, he's actually accused with assault in other ways, but uh, this is pretty much the way it went down. Um... A New Zealand man accused of assault with a prickly weapon, a hedgehog, has been fined by court and ordered to pay most of the fine to the teenage victim. Wakatane District Court was told Thursday that William Singerlar picked up the hedgehog and threw it several yards at and hit a 15-year-old boy in the North Island East Coast town of Wachtane on February 9th. Police told the court that the unusual assault weapon had hit the victim on his leg, causing a large red welt and several puncture marks. Now, you guys here in the U.S. that aren't familiar with a hedgehog, hedgehogs are like a spiny little critter, kind of 
kind of like what we think of when we think of a porcupine. And where we're going. Um, police told the court uh, the unusual assault weapon had uh, hit the victim. Okay, we got that. The team did not need medical treatment. Singerlaw was convicted of common assault and offensive behavior following, following a defended hearing. He had pleaded innocent to the charges. Oh, come on, man. If you throw a hedgehog at somebody, everybody's going to know. He was fined a total of 700 New Zealand dollars, which is about $545 here, U.S., with 500 New Zealand dollars paid to the victim. That's $389 U.S. The more serious charge of assault with a weapon, namely a hedgehog, was dropped. The maximum penalty for that charge is five years in prison. Holy cow, we need laws like that here. Um, it was not known whether the hedgehog was dead or alive at the time of the attack. But Senior Sergeant Bruce Jenkins said earlier that said earlier that it was dead when they collected it as evidence. Yeah, okay. I can I can see that. While using a hedgehog as a weapon in an assault is uncommon. Jenkins said people often got charged with assault for throwing things at other people. Well, you know, that's the way it is. Now, the only one I pity in this situation is the hedgehog. Uh, you know, it doesn't say what the boy was doing to, ir to irritate Mr. Singalaw, uh, but uh, he probably shouldn't have thrown something that could injure somebody anyway. Now, the only loser in this, in the, you know, the, big, the one to feel sorry for in this situation is the hedgehog. And uh, I do. Well, that pretty much brings us to the end of, uh, strangely enough, for this this week. Uh, like I said, uh, if you want to get in touch with us, you can shoot off an email to Richard S.E. or Bill S.E. at BlackSparrowMedia.com. BlackSparrowMedia.com. And we'll try to have Bill online with us next week. And once again, thank y'all for downloading us this week. And uh, come back again. We'll, we'll have some more stuff for you. Everybody have a, have a good week. Big moon thinking in the western sky. And the wind through the trees keeps on begging to play my sweet Melissa.
Without you by my side, my sweet little. 